Welcome to the most valuable fucking show you're going to listen to all week. What skills do I have to bring this to market and what skills don't I have? Do you have the ability to solve the problem? Am I going to need to do this solo? Do I need other people? How stuck to the idea are you in that you're not adaptable or flexible to listening to the feedback that you're so seeking? This is Unfuck My Business. Welcome to the Unfuck My Business show. It is your host, Kristen Laney, and I am here Two unbelievable people, starting with the letter J. We have Jinx and Jennifer. How are you, folks? <laughs> What's up, on fuckers? Fantastic. I don't know how to follow that. <laughs> it's going to be fun because Jinx and I do this a lot, so we're just going <laughs> to we're going to see how Jennifer adapts. It's all good. Today, we are talking about how you can take your forty-page business plan, wipe your ass with it, and throw it in the trash. Because listen. We understand business plans are talked about a lot. It's amazing. We spent time on them. They're important. They they play a part in your business. But listen, COVID forced everybody to innovate, change, adapt, pivot, all those keywords that go good in SEO. Let's talk about a method that we can use that I'm going to propose from the work that I do, which is a very quick, very systematic approach to what I believe the most important part of a business, which is viability. I think without viability... You can't build a business around it. So why would you even bother? And I think in today's world, especially where people are being sold on the idea they need all these systems right away and make it all easier, right? We had a conversation about technology. I think it all boils down to some very simple steps. So I think we want to go through that journey and kind of understand. I have a four-step approach to this. I'd like to flesh out with both you guys. And I'll kind, of, uh, I'll kind of share with you what I think. And then obviously from your point of view, I'm going to frame the conversation for a service-based business, right? If you're in a business in which you're dealing with you know, clients, client-focused conversation, client relationships, that's where I come from. So if you are in the fitness, coaching, consulting, if you are somebody who is a professional who's impacted by COVID and all of a sudden you're a nutritionist, a doctor, or somebody who's saying, I want to take this to the online space, that's where we'd be talking about this. And if you're also a business trying to take action on a new line or service to be implemented in your business, this could also work as well. So I'm going to go out there. I'm going to throw out the first thing that I believe is super, super important. I would love to get the feedback from Jinx and Jennifer, which is I believe you have to take steps to figure out the identity of the business first. So what I mean by that is as an owner, as somebody who's going to start the business, do you see yourself building a company with employees? Do you see this as an opportunity to just build some cash and have a lifestyle business? And then there's another part to this too, which is I believe you should ask yourself the question when you start a business is this something I could do every day of my life without getting resentful, frustrated, and burnt out? And I think that conversation should extend to family and the people around you so they know that when you go radio silent, that you're okay and safe, right? So that's my first thought process on this, is really getting the identity of the business down first, beginning with the end in mind of what you expect, because your strategy from there is going to be a little bit different. So I'm going to throw it out to Jinx first. If you were approaching a service-based business, that first step of really designing the, the outline or the, or the thought in mind of what you're trying to build and also thinking about it from an intentional place of your mental, emotional, financial well-being first and also having people on board, family, friends, the people who are there um, and having those discussions. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, asking it in the context of a service-based business is a little bit hard for me because although I've been in the service-based space, if you think of you know, development for hire as a service, Generally, I'm more focused on technology businesses, and our starting point is a little bit different. I mean, maybe there's two tracks of one through four here that we can actually follow through, because when we're creating a product or a, a technology offering, our very first question is, does this really solve a real problem? 
like before we ever start to think about what's the business around this product, we ask, is the product worth a shit? And the business questions themselves come second to that. You know, I, I agree with your approach on pure service-based businesses. I mean, that sounds pretty reasonable. Although I think a lot of service-based businesses are sort of born out of a combination of opportunity and desperation, which mine certainly was, you know? And so those questions weren't there in advance. But I think the model you've outlined for a step one, it sounds solid to me. So what about for you, Jennifer? What are your thoughts on that? I ditto what Jinx stated. I would also add that I believe it depends on what phase or where you're at in your business. So if it's an existing business and you're looking to pivot, identity becomes a question of two prongs, in my opinion, which is, are you looking at your identity from the inside out or the outside in? Because inside out, you're looking at your inherently defined in terms of how people organically found you, your, what people already think about you. Outside in is really targeting a certain demographic and then having a pivot to match that to make your identity be what you want it to be. So I, I think that there's two different ways that you can think about it in terms of positioning and direction from an identity standpoint. But I also agree with Jinx on the technology side, or if you're product focused, there's a different step in which you want to take. I like the step of what problem you're solving. I also look at if you were to solve a problem, what's the quickest way to take action on doing that so you can test the viability, hence why we're here. I love it. I love it. So coming from that perspective, step two for me is about finding the gap and the opportunity that you're going to be working on. From the perspective of the individual first, my point of view is, is that in order to go on the endeavor, you kind of have to have a vision of what you're going to do. There has to be an impetus for the action in the first place. So I think if we were to take this all the way back to step zero, I would probably say what I just stated is a step zero. I agree with you guys. The, the first um, step to taking the action in the business, I believe, is beginning to approach it from what gap you are seeing, the gifts that you have and the technical expertise you have. And so, and I'm breaking this down into micro functions just to like really dial in like how you can also have a, uh, a KPI out of this, a key performance indicator. But I like to break this down into three steps. And I like to look at this particular step as what is the actual gap that you're seeing as a hypothesis? Because good research starts the hypothesis. And do you have the ability to solve the problem? And so you're looking at a couple different things. You're looking at your core experience, your subject matter expertise, and also what you enjoy doing and finding a good congruency between those. And then you're asking yourself the question, am I going to need to do this solo? Do I need other people? And then you begin to start taking a look at what your hypothetical problem to solve is. So I'm taking a look at this as a stated hypothetical value of, I help blank with this by this, right? So by the time we're finished with that thought process, we have a good understanding of where we're focusing our niche, where we're focusing our attention. And we can also start to build a little bit of a, a, an archetypal buyer, right? We can start to think about that archetypal buyer now. So it's a good alignment. And the reason I say that is because I think that it's going to reduce your marketing efforts and your sales efforts, obviously, in the next couple of phases, because you're going to be able to identify that and take some quick actions towards sales viability. So is that something that you guys dive into or would dive into in a detailed place like that or a process like that when you're thinking about you know, niching and also looking at like where you're going to be focusing your efforts? Let's start with you, Jinx. I mean, definitely. I think with, with technology teams, it's pretty, I'm not going to say rare, but it's uncommon to be purely a sole prop sort of single operator. You know, typically, you probably are going to be working with some other 
people up front because to bring a product to market just requires multiple skill sets. So team building becomes an immediate thing in a technology product. You have to look around right away and establish what skills do I have to bring this to market and what skills don't I have. Um, and I think that that's much more obvious in the technology space than it is in like some other businesses because, you know, a fitness uh, business, for instance, right? A good personal trainer with some decent background in having run a business or whatever is probably going to be able to operate as a sole prop for a little bit. And then you're going to start picking up vendors to fill in the gaps, right? Like a CPA or, you know, a consultant or whatever, things along that line. Whereas in technology, right off the bat, it's about partnerships, you know? And uh, I, I had you on a call recently with one of the teams that I was evaluating on whether or not I want to get involved with them. And you see that they are 100% focused on the product. They have formed their team. They've been working on a prototype. They don't know what the business looks like at all. None. And that's not uncommon in the technology space for a team to sort of organically form, work together purely on spec, and spend six months to a year or more just trying to see if they have a viable product, you know? Um, so I think the MVP space is really variable by industry, but everybody comes to those same steps eventually. The timing just changes, you know? How about for you, Jennifer? Yeah, no, I actually love those three steps. And I think it definitely applies to product delivery. We actually start out with what's called the benefit hypothesis. And I love the framework that you mentioned because most of our user stories fit within that framework of, we believe so that by X, and we can measure that by this. That way you know what upfront data you need to be analyzing, you know what upfront things you need to pull in, do you even have a starting point? Can I start here? And then once I have that starting point, then I know where my next step should be to be able to experiment on all of those things. You know, how can I get a POC up and running? Especially in the technology space, you want a POC as much as possible. You have to experiment, experimenting, testing. That's where you're going to learn and that's where you're going to understand what's possible. And I think when you are innovating or even introducing a new idea, even in the service industry, that becomes very critical that experimentation, how can you do it in such a way that gives you a bite sized microcosm of what could be? What are the capabilities? Totally. Can you, can you define what a POC is? I don't know what that means. Yes, proof of concept. Sorry, okay, cool. No <laughs> As we've outlined it so far, so this step, step two, is all about defining the problem and then creating your hypothesis. Like, who's it a problem for? Why is it a problem? Can we solve it? As, as Jinx stated, and I, I actually like the flow of this. Like in that in that um, that tech space, you're probably going to have some people who are on board for that because you're going to need it, right? Um, so there's probably more of a, a thought process of funding and, and VC and some other stuff down the road. So this becomes really interesting. So. The third step in here is something that I believe a lot of folks don't know how to do, especially in small business, or they end up just making an, a wild assumption. I believe that this phase is all about market research. But the caveat is, is that the market research here, I want to be actually making revenue. And so what I do in this process is, and again, you can condense this from 90 days down to 30 days. It depends on how fast you want to work. But I believe in the idea of testing and getting in front of your, and this is where it's important, getting in front of your actual ideal client. Because just like any research, you want actual research questions answered from your ideal client, not Joe Schmo who's like, yeah, I don't know. The video didn't look that great, right? You want to get meaningful feedback. And the other thing is you want to be very careful on the opinions you take in too, because that's going to skew your results, right? So in here, what I like to do is I like to employ an, a, a comparative analysis is where I might nerd out a little bit because this helps me learn the game. But I like doing a good overall swath of the industry itself that, that I see it being a problem for. Like, what is this person in the bigger P, the bigger uh, area? So 
for instance, with our company TriVibe, I knew shit all about e-commerce, but I did know that I want to find out like what the actual opportunity is worth in retail and then e-commerce and then apparel and what does that look like. And I'll do like a big picture analysis. I'll grab some pictures, throw them into a document. It gives me a good visual. And then I start breaking that down and I, I start niching it down to make it more refined of like, what is my opportunity in here? Okay, I know that 18% of, of apparel sold is hoodies. Okay, is that going to be one of our products, right? Is that going to be something we're going to offer? I start taking a look at the aspects of my business that would cost some money, like print on demand or something there, or, or what do I need and not need here? So there's a little bit of projection. And then finally, I look at consumer behavior. So I'm looking at like, what are these consumers actually dealing with? What is the pricing out in the field? And then I want to start actually getting in front of people. And this is where I think a lot of people miss, especially from what I've seen in the technology space, because it's mostly like Chris said, or Jing said, focusing on the product too much. I want to be in front of people asking them the question, like, is this really a problem for you? And if it is, how would you like it solved? What's a way we can solve that for you? Would you like it this way, delivery method? And then if we were able to solve those problems, how much would you pay for it? Can you imagine what kind of feedback you have now and how little uh, less effort your first round of organic marketability is going to be when you know these things and you're literally going back to people and saying, this is what you asked for, this is what we created. Or can we sit down for a little while and maybe your rate would have been $300 an hour for consulting, but you want to get information. So maybe you start with like, hey, 20 bucks an hour and I'll sit down with you, we'll go through some things or maybe even free because then you also get to know who you like to work with because you might end up going back to step one all over again. And I think that's an important part of this, but I get very passionate about this step and know it's not designed to get stuck in, in paralysis analysis. It is get in front of people still to prove out, to get ready for your, your iterative MVP, in my opinion. But I would love to hear what your thoughts on this are, Jinx. Well, it was funny when you, when you said swath, I thought for sure you were going to say SWOT because you were talking about opportunity and doing SWOT analysis is a common part yeah. of that, right? Uh, uh, strength, weakness, opportunities, threats, right? Um, and and being able to outline that for your business is a great way to figure out where you land in the marketplace. Even though your early SWOT analysis is probably going to be weak because you're you know you're you're working with limited information, but that at least gives you a starting point. But there's an old military adage that says uh, you know the well I'm going to paraphrase here into Jinx style, but the battle plan goes to shit on first contact with the enemy, right? And that early market testing is critical because you really see where your business plan failed to account for A, B, C, D, E, you know? And A, B, and C may have been predictable. Maybe you didn't have enough information. D may be a threat that you never saw coming, you know? And E may be some wild-ass act of God type shit like COVID where, you know, how do you plan for a once-in-a-lifetime pandemic? You know, how do you account for those kinds of things? So I, I agree. I think it's important to start engaging with, and, and you heard me give that advice to, to the same team that we were talking to previously, starting to engage with the audience, starting to engage with the marketplace as soon as possible with the barest bones transaction possible, just to make sure you've got something, you know, does the market actually give a shit about this at all? Uh, I think that's hugely important. Yeah, I mean, fuck the websites, everything else. Like, I need an app. Get out there in front of somebody and say, would you buy this? Get an intent, see people get excited about it, and then you know, right? Jennifer, what are your thoughts? Oh, my gosh. So this is probably my favorite question so far and probably my favorite stage of your four-step process that, that we're going through. And the best way to sum it up, probably my favorite example is a company, Warby Parker. 
And when they were designing and implementing their application, the software, this new idea that they had, they didn't do it in a bubble. They didn't do it in a bunch of offices, tossing around a vision and a business plan and all of these great ideas. They were literally standing in a department store and they had a sketchbook and an artist and they were drawing out different phases of what each screen on the application could look like. And as they were drawing it out, they literally had a developer on standby coding based on actual feedback. So as people were trying on glasses, they're like, what do you think about this? What if you had an app with a person that could tell you, oh, you look great, Chris, or oh, Jinx, those glasses, those that doesn't fit your face very well. How would you like this? So they're getting real-time feedback as they're doing market research and th- delivering that feedback straight back to the person who's actually going to be doing the work to get you to where you need to go. And to me, that's just a great example to synthesize why market research is so important and why ditching your business plan is key. And, and I really want to emphasize that planning is good. So no one's saying don't have a plan. What big upfront planning means is that you're planning your entire business, your entire idea of thinking, every little aspect of it, it has to be perfect and completed before there's any action taken and we're asking you to flip that on its head. Because the risk in that approach is that over time we get new information. And understanding the psychology of human nature becomes really important when you consider why this is such a major faux pas. We have expectations, we have ideals, and when they're not met, We feel like, oh no, something's wrong and that feedback can be taken the wrong way. So don't stay tied to the original design. You have to allow for that new information to feed your next direction, which is why I love this this great approach. I think we could break this down even further because there's another aspect of analyzing a business that's already in motion to kind of see where they're at in that that planning phase. But I agree with you completely. We're talking about speed to market right now, right? The, the, The most important thing is idea to MVP. And the faster you can do that, the better you're going to be at being able to take the, the feedback from the market. Because one of the biggest things I noticed was, I think the SBA says that 42% of businesses after 10 years fail because the market fails to connect back to their, their products. And it's because we've lost the connection to the marketplace. So step three, where people are like, I don't like to market. This is your chance to get fucking innovative and crazy. And why businesses that I look at who have somebody who is really, really excited about getting in front of people are businesses I love being a part of. And I think that's really, really important. So the final step in this approach here for me that I look at as a measurable outcome is I look for actual market acceptance and viability. In here, what I'm looking at is a really solid beta offer that's being offered to the marketplace, that's being accepted, and sales are generated. So we might have in research phase, you might develop like maybe like 500 or grand, 2,000, whatever you, whatever you naturally grab in there if you feel like you're ready to start charging for the time. But here, what I like to see is I like to see at least three to six months of anywhere in a service-based business, I like to see three to $5,000 a month consistently. And when I start to see that level off at the five, I know that we're on track with that. And I think what I like to see in the beginning of that MVP is, especially in the service-based side of things, I want to see you out in front of people selling it to them one-to-one if you can and then scaling out to getting it to masses of people. Because in that service-based space, you can name your price within reason. And I think based on the feedback in the market, they accept that. So if you are, let's say, a coach or a consultant, granted, you have to have experience. I'm not saying go become a consultant because this sounds good. You should be able to find your ideal client and get contracts signed and be developing a track record of results by this phase. And you should have that down pat. And I believe that the feedback from the experiences that you have from beginning of relationship to delivering on the services, that is when you begin to start getting the feedback of, okay, maybe we look at a website, maybe we look at some internal systems 
because now we have money to pay for them and actually get it done right. So nowhere in here was I a big fan of saying, get your website done in step one and spend a shit ton of money or whatever and spend time on it. This was strictly idea to action and getting it in front of customers. Unless you're in technology, which I mean, these guys eat code for breakfast. So James, what are your thoughts on step four? It's so variable again, because it depends very much on the industry. You know, if, if you are, you know, like you said, if, you, if you're working with a bunch of tech guys who eat code for breakfast, I mean, I've worked on projects where nobody got paid for two years because we were exploring a new technology, you know, uh, and that's not uncommon. But I think as a rule, you know, the faster you're getting revenue in the door, the better. So every shortcut you can take to start that process rolling is the best possible path because it's going to reduce your need for VC. It's going to reduce your, your stress about everybody's working for free for the longest amount of time and all the rest of that, you know, whatever the most direct route is. And, and again, I'll go back to, you know, what's the smallest, simplest transaction you can do? You know, if, if your concept is making a sale to a certain kind of market, and you think that adding additional tooling is going to make that process easier, then, you know, can you make a sale without that tooling using existing tools now? Can you prove that you can at least complete a transaction, you know? Uh, and the more you repeat that, the faster you get to the path of actually being a business, you know? Everything before that is just experimentation. And there's lots of great experimentation that happens in technology all the time. The FOSS community, free and open source software, is a great example of that, where people spend a ton of time working on concepts, but it's not like they're interested in the business part of it. They just release it to the community at large to use in other ways. You know, part of the question has to be, what am I trying to accomplish with what I'm doing? And if you've asked some of those questions earlier on, going back to your step one in the process, then you probably have some better idea of that. But if you don't, then get to transactions as fast as possible by the shortest and most direct route possible. Yes, and that's absolutely key. And I like the insight from the technology space because I think people chase a lot of wild ideas in the technology space for real. Jennifer, what are your thoughts on step four? I think Jinx was in my brain for part of his answer because I totally agree. I've been part of several technology product-based artifacts that we were delivering that had no revenue related to it. However, I would challenge that there should be some sort of return. It may not be direct revenue, but it might be time savings, or it might be that you've just created a better process so that, you know, more of your customers are engaged. And so there's an inherent value that's created from that specifically. So what we like to look at, to your point, which I love the getting in there, taking action, you should have some sort of beta uh, to market product. We look at, can you create a whole, instead of the entire hamburger, can you create a bite? So if you're taking a bite of the hamburger, does it have the bread, the mayo, the cheese, the lettuce? You know, can you get that one slice without building the entire hamburger? And that's how you get the taste and you get the feeling of it. You get the understanding without wasting all of the time and money to deliver or create a product. So I always try and think in slices. Like how do we, even if it's cake, how do you slice that cake? Can you get a whole bite of it without making the whole cake? And that's how you know you're onto something. And that's how you can get real tangible feedback on your direction. The solid uh, parables in that, in that process of what that looks like. So there's a couple other things I definitely want to touch on while we're together on this. But to recap, what we talked about was really a step plan, four steps. Now, I'm a big fan of, of saying this. Listen, we're, we're talking about high-level principles. How they manifest as details is totally based on your industry. But uh, can we agree on those four steps, right? As principles, right? The first idea being you as an individual, if you're going to solve a problem in the marketplace, this could be personal preference because I heard Jinx say, 
could be step four as well, right? But for me, it's step one, which is you have to know what you're getting yourself into and think about this for a second. As an entrepreneur, right? As an entrepreneur, we look for opportunities. We look to dive in and get it done. So I think it's important for you to know, is this going to be something you're actually going to be interested in? Because so many people get burnt out later on because they're not seeing the results. Or even if that thing gets delayed, it could be a great idea, but they get frustrated. But the identity of it. Are you looking to build a, a small service-based business? Are you looking to build a company? Do you see yourself having partners? What does that look like? Because I do believe that you know, if, if we didn't have the thought process of building a company, the team wouldn't exist. right? There wouldn't be a reach out to build a leadership team or, or whatnot. Second thing being really driving in to understand what it is that you can provide to the marketplace. So is there a fit between what you see as the identified problem, your, your hypothesis, I think this is a problem, how could I solve this breaking down your subject matter expertise, your experience and the things that you're passionate about? And do you have relationships that you can bring to that table as well? Um, and then really identifying who's it a problem for that I think I see that connection. There's an assumption there. There's going to be some archetypal buyer stuff there, which clue, if you don't know what this means, research it. An archetypal buyer, make sure you know an idea and understanding who this is a problem for. You're not going to try to solve a problem for a stay-at-home mom that the same problem would be for a female executive. They're two different types of people, right? And then you actually have, in step two, your hypothetical value statement. I help or solve this for so-and-so. Who deal with this, with this process or whatever that product is, right? The third step being market research. But the caveat is research with a goal of making some money in the process. Getting the feedback, serving people, showing that your methodology works and the results is going to be some value in the monetary side of things if you can. And then the fourth step being all about that's your hypothetical sales projections. You're out there selling it. You need to be out in the field no matter who you are. My viewpoint is I don't care if you're a developer, HR, the janitor, everybody's involved in sales of some kind in a startup. Because everybody has to rely on that machine, that, that, that community, that organism to feed everybody. If that organism goes under, then nobody has a job. So we need to be tied into that, I think. Um, and I love what you said. You said step four is all about getting a bite of the hamburger with everything on it without making the whole hamburger. I thought that was awesome. So I think that leads us into the next phase of this, which is I think is really important, which is the idea of failure and how it becomes a scarlet letter for some. And, and I think it's, I have my thoughts on this, we'll talk about it, but the word failure and how it's perceived, especially in business, I kind of want to talk about this. And, and I have this prevailing belief that you fail and you fail fast. That feedback gives you so much insight and information, uh, but I would love to know maybe what does it mean for you to fail fast? And maybe you've got experience with that. So I want to start off with Jennifer this time. Is there experience with failure and failing fast? Oh, so... Yes, I have a lot of experience with failure. I don't even know which one to lever leverage right now. So I'll start off by saying what it means to me to fail fast is to reduce the amount of time that it takes to recognize when something is going wrong. So not necessarily avoiding failure or, um, or even looking for ways to fail, which some people can interpret fail fast as that. Let me find ways to fail because then that gets me to my end result. I'm looking at how can I reduce that feedback loop? Experimentation is all about failure. And so if you're living in a state of curiosity and you're living in that experimentation state, I don't think failure is part of your vocabulary. It's just part of the process. So I look to reduce that feedback loop. There's been plenty of products that I've delivered that have failed to meet what I hoped the end user would do. So that's why 
that bite of the hamburger becomes very critical because then I can fix it before I've built that entire hamburger. And that's really what I look at. Reduce that feedback loop. Try to get to a state where I can recognize it earlier. Let that feedback tell me, oh, I am completely going in the wrong direction or validate what I think my assumptions are saying. Love this. This is, this might be the most valuable episode (laughs) that anybody can listen to. This is fucking incredible. Jinx, your thoughts. What do you think about this? Failing fast. What's your experience with it? I think Facebook kind of made that concept famous because, uh, you know, Zuckerberg's like, we like to fail fast and break things. And, and that's that's not a bad approach. I mean, it's, but I think that that's, it, it, it leads to sort of a cavalier cowboy kind of perspective on it. And and I think that's just a little bit too broad. And, and at the risk of being counter to my own brand, I like a more subtle approach. We have a concept in, in CRO and in UX called friction, right? Um, if I'm trying to get a user to engage with my application or if I'm trying to get them to a conversion point on a website, right, there are going to be places where users get hung up and we call those friction points. And in game theory and game design, they have the same thing. When they do test playthroughs, one of the things that they test is in what place or with what encounter or facing what enemy do shit tons of players die most often? That's a friction point. Now, that can either be good or bad, depending on the, you know, the end result with gaming. But in apps and in conversion journeys, we want to reduce those as much as possible. We want this to be flawless. We want it to flow smoothly. We don't want the user to think about it. We don't want them having to try and make choices or guess what they're supposed to do next. We're trying to find those friction points and eliminate them. So failing fast in in that particular scenario really means how many users can I push through this funnel as quickly as possible and use good tools to measure where things aren't working well. Right. And so it's not like the business is failing, but we're finding those pain points very, very quickly through the use of analytical data and measuring of user behavior to quickly identify where the flaws and the pain points are. And every piece of friction we remove is a previous failure that we're now resolving. And the faster we identify those friction points, the faster we get to a product that actually works for the user. So like, you know, to me, that's the key point of that. It's not about like being cowboys and being like, oh, I've just started my third business this month. I'm failing fast, motherfucker. You know, um, you know, it's really more about being able to quickly identify the flaws and the breakdowns in the system that you're creating and resolve them. Fail fast, but then solve it just as fast. I love that. And I think you can take that same mentality, Jinx, and apply it to a service-based industry as well. Because you can see where am I losing my customer or my audience? Where, you know, I got them, they're engaged or doing what I want, but all of a sudden things have stopped, it's quiet. And where, you know, identifying that journey and how that end user, that audience member is interacting with me and experimenting and trying out other ways to keep them engaged throughout the business. Yeah, I think that's important, right? Because there's a lot of conversation around, you know, this conversation of big numbers, right? Especially when you're talking about procuring clients, when you're talking about selling things like consulting or coaching. There's always these conversations of like, just go for big numbers. The right person will find you or whatever. And so people end up caught up in the details. And I think the other challenge is, is that, you know, when you're in that phase of not knowing, because we're talking about a mindset, we're talking about how to define something. So we just collectively talked about failure in different ways, but spoke to the same principle. And we look at failure not as an emotional thing, which I think is the key, right? It's not an emotional thing. It's actually a signal. And the signal is the feedback that tells us like, hey, this is working or not working. And here's another signal I'm interested in in talking about too, which is when we find people who are getting feedback from the wrong fucking places, right? And they have a struggle because they can't figure out if it's the idea 
or the audience that they're asking. So it might be the right solution for the wrong people that they're trying to talk to. And so how do you take a look at that and really begin to diagnose where that challenge is um, when it comes to, is it the idea or the audience? Is it just the market doesn't understand or is it the idea itself? I'll start back with Jennifer again. My personal philosophy on this is always listen to the user, always listen to the customer in terms of that. You know, if, if I have an idea that I'm trying to bring to the market, I think it's very important for my audience or my end user, depending on, on if it's a product or not, to tell me, is this something that they need? So I don't, I don't know if it's even a question of, is it the idea or is it the audience? And more of how stuck to the idea are you in that you're not adaptable or flexible to listening to the feedback that you're so seeking. So. Ooh, I like this. This is going to be a good conversation. So there's a, there's a concept called coachability index, which is willingness to learn times willingness to change. And both are a factor of zero to 10. I think that's a really interesting thought process of how do we start to measure this now? Because what you just said is fucking mind blowing, right? So let's go to Jinx. What do you think? Is it audience idea? How do you how do you sort through? See, this is challenging, and Jen just kind of blew my mind a little bit as well because it's you know I, I am such a data focused person on how we deal with these kinds of things, and I think the important question you asked there is where are you getting that data from? And Jen really expounded upon that with you know like okay, so you know how how are you measuring and and can you even measure to in some meaningful way. Like to me personally, one of the least valuable feedbacks that I hear businesses getting all the time is asking their friends and family the opinion about the product or the layout or the user journey and all the rest of that. It's wildly unqualified device that's given incredibly too much weight, you know? And we deal with this with clients as well, you know, where they're like, well, you know, I asked my my cousin Mikey and and, you know, he's he's going to school for web design. And he said, you know, it's like, oh, Christ, you know, spare me from having to explain myself to amateurs, you know, like you you don't even understand the concepts that I'm describing, you know, put a bird on it, whatever. Um, so, you know, trying to find qualified advice, if you don't have hard data, then you have to look for qualified feedback. And and that gets really ephemeral because, you know, do you even have the skill set to determine what qualified feedback is? I think that's a place where business networks in particular are super useful because you can go get a bunch of feedback by a variety of people who may have a variety of levels of qualification, you know, Um, but chances are you're going to have at least one or two people in a good business network that are directly experienced, directly experts in specifically what you're doing you know, and if you ignore the, you know, the the Avon lady that showed up's opinion on, you know, what good user interface looks like, and you pay attention to the people who are actually like seasoned industry experts, you know, I think that's a way that you can kind of bypass that cycle. But yeah, the 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 amount of data available to businesses that don't have good analytics data and they're mostly working with human data is really challenging because you get a lot of unqualified opinions that are emotionally weighted higher than other conflicting opinions that you probably should be listening to. The other key aspect too is data and feedback. There's a timing standpoint. There's a procurement, you know, when something is new and something is released, like a a new product is released, there's going to be resistance to change or there's going to be an initial reaction and you have to have the fortitude to just let it roll out for a little while. Like there's a, a procurement period before you start to rely on the feedback that you're seeing. I think it's the same thing with data. Data has to normalize. You're going to see all sorts of spikes. You have to have enough to have a trend. So 
One of the things that I see all the time, especially with executives who are coming out with a new product and they have a lot of, you know, very high touch either consumers or they're very vocal is they're very reactive. So they'll get all of these opinions and maybe it's 10% of the population and it's like, oh no, I got to change. I got to do, no, just give it a moment. Let, let the feedback die down. Let the data tell you more over time, not just what you're seeing at first. So let the reactions come, let the data normalize. So there's a, a timeliness to that feedback as well. I could not agree more. So I have this thought process of, of how I kind of do this systematically is um, I create three groups typically, no matter where I move to or what I do, because I, I need that feedback from people I can, I can vet and understand. Because I think this is one of the greatest challenges I think we face as entrepreneurs is not knowing how to ask the right question. And I think that's a question of also being able to utilize resources. So I look for three groups, and this is what I advocate for. I, I look for one group that is the group of people that are going to help you flesh out your idea without trying to change the idea. It's not about their ego. It's about delivery method. It's about like, okay, innovation, but you have the idea. It's your thing. You got inspired. That's your thing. Cool. Let's, let's just throw it against the wall and see what, see what happens. And these are people who probably that you perceive would be more successful than you or somebody who's had the track record of success. I like what Ray Dalio says. He says, look for people who've done it at least three times. Talk to the people who've done it at least three times. That way you'll know it wasn't a fluke. That's one group, maybe six or seven people. If you don't have a group like that, you probably want to talk to us at Unfuck My Business. The second group is going to be the group of strategic partners. These are people that I like who are in complementary industries where if you were to do a Venn diagram, there would be a little bit of fit, but you don't compete. So these would be like tertiary peripheral industries. Like if you're in real estate, you might want to connect with an insurance. You might want to talk to other people who are in client-based businesses so that when you bring something to them, you're having a discussion of how you guys can help each other move the ball forward in getting the, the message out, having the discussion if there's going to be a good client fit so you can generate more ideal clients. And then finally, what I like to do is I like to, to create a fun group of ideal clients. I like to find those people and ask them if they'd be interested in being a part of the beta test, whatever. And we've done you know, a few thousand dollar beta tests before where these people, obviously, it's based on your experience and, and your you know, positioning. But those are folks who knew we were good at what we did, but we were just trying something new and they could come take a part of it and be the first in group to check it out. So those three groups are really good because you don't want to get the wrong feedback, but now you're in control and you can kind of create the controls within your data. That's kind of like a real world thing that I'm a huge proponent of that I believe uh, works really, really well. So let's talk a little bit about, um, let's say it's just not working, Right. Let's say you're at that phase, and, we're, and I like this conversation because we're talking about criteria for making decisions, which I think is fucking crucial. When do you quit? When do you say, like, hey, this is a bad idea? Maybe if you even have investors, people who spend some money. When do you say, like, hey, like we're throwing in the towel, we've done everything that we can? I'm going to start with Jinx on this one first. So I think that, like, it's not just a question of flat when you quit, but it's, it's, what scope do you quit, right? Because when we're, when we're delivering a product like this, right, there's a few different aspects of it. You've got a feature, you've got a delivery mechanism, and you have a concept, right? And so I have to start by figuring out what's not working here. Is it the feature, right? Hopefully it's the feature because the feature I can change quickly, right? Is it the delivery mechanism? Now it gets a little more difficult, right? Because now we're moving beyond just how does the button work, but we're looking at like, 
how does an entire layout work? Or is this better as an app or a web service or something like that, right? You start getting into heavier architectural questions. And then the real deep one is, fuck, is the entire concept broken, you know? And, and so that's like the first thing that you have to figure out, which again is where data is so important. I've seen a bunch of people who were hung up on a bad feature or a bad delivery mechanism and gave up on the concept prematurely. They could have still delivered the concept and it was probably a good product concept, but they thought it should have certain look and feel or interactivity, or they thought it needed to be an app when it could have been a web service you know, but, and then they gave up on the entire concept instead. And some of the most successful pivots that I've seen are people who can quickly identify where that scope is and, and, and respond appropriately. And I think, you know, if you're getting good data that says people are interested in this concept and people are okay with accepting this product through the delivery mechanism that I proposed, then it's really just about features or, you know, repivoting on the delivery mechanism. But you have to figure out the scope of that failure, whatever it is, in order to make that decision. And you only give up on whatever the limitation of that scope is and you try and keep the rest of it going, you know, or you do greater market testing to see if, okay, maybe the problem's bigger than what I think it is, you know. I could see us talking about this in front of some large audiences because this is such a great topic. But Jennifer, what do you think? I love Jinx's answer. It just gave me all the warm and fuzzies. But I'll add that your ability to make the decision on when to quit is only as good as the data that you start with. And that is in terms of, do I even do any sort of building in any sort of technological development at all before I even start testing it out? Because there's so many ways that you can do simple testing, simple market research before you start building. So then once you start that development from a product standpoint, I think Jinx hit the nail on the head. It's, it's outside of just this, just the scope, but is it a feature? Is it a, is it the concept, et cetera? I will also say that there's enough, if you have the right data and the right information, you can put in enough assumptions to have a payback period. And if your payback period doesn't quantify your your ability to move forward, you should not be moving forward with the concept. And most people can have some basic ROI in terms of hard dollars, time, whatever you're trying to solve for, you can get a basic ROI if you have enough data to even supply that decision-making. What you just said about assumptions, I think, is something that I would like to talk about for just a minute before we wrap up, which I think is crucial, right? One of the reasons why I hate business plans and why I hate planning in general is a lot of folks don't stick to their plan anyways, because it requires you to make an assumption and put yourself out on a limb. And it may fail, it may fuck up, it may happen, but it requires you to go all in on the plan and not micro change things along the way, because every single small shift is like flying a plane from California to New York City. And if there's a one degree shift in the nose of that plane, you're going to end up in fucking Texas. And so if you're not willing to go down the journey of like, okay, we have the plan, it is set. We cannot shift and change unless there's like a conversation and why I advocate for partnerships versus solopreneurship. I fucking hate that word too, solopreneurship. Just made up. Partnerships are important because who you lead as your team and who you have as a team is a really important conversation because that person can provide you the input. It's so important to find people who are stronger than you in the areas that you're weak at. And to have that discussion of like, what does this look like? Where are we going? Where's the iterative changes? And not just changing the entire idea. Because again, to Chris's point, to Jinx's point, so many people give up before the idea is proven. And it's like, how did that not work? You know? So I think that becomes... All or nothing approach to this. And the first bad news they get, that's it. They're yeah. out. The first pushback, 
you know, and I've watched people walk out of business networking meetings. I've watched people walk out of partnership people meetings. People walk out of ESC when you said the I, app was a shitty idea. Right. <laughs> you know, and, and it's, you know, listen, it's, it's not that your concept is bad. It's that the delivery mechanism is bad or the feature is bad. You have to make sure that you're scoping that failure appropriately, you know? So good. You know, and, and I think that, that that's an emotional thing. That's why I call step one what I do, because I think that, um, you know, if, if I was going to be working for somebody who's in the, in the tech field, I might just do my role, right? But if you're the person who comes to the table with the idea, I think it's really important for you to think about this because my philosophy is, you know, don't add a business to solve your financial issues any more than you would bring a baby into a failing marriage. It's the same type of commitment, right? There's the thinking about it all the time. You're obsessed about it. You have to feed that baby. You have to clean it shit up. You have to do everything. And so when people ask me a lot, they're like, so I'm interested in this business. How long do you think it'll take? I don't fucking know. But what I do know is these are the steps to follow that I've seen over and over and over again, identifying the pattern. And it seems to be true across all the people that I've seen and work for me too. So these are the steps. However fast you want to go is totally up to you. And then that brings in the consideration of risk tolerance. How risk tolerant are you? Are you willing to put it all on the line to see what happens? That's totally your choice. Do you have a family? You might have to think about that, right? If you have you know, a, a weak cash position, you might want to think about that. But it blows my mind how many people are in that place of like, I have a business and they've done zero sales, but they've been focusing all their time and effort on their fucking product. It's like, I know you love this, but chances are that automatic hand that wipes your ass isn't going to work for everybody. You know, may not. So uh, I, I I would like that product <laughs> <laughs> at your at your desk too. Oh, especially especially at the desk when we're evaluating startups. This is our idea. Let me wipe my ass first. All right, we're good. All right, we're gonna wrap up. But before we do, any closing thoughts on viability? And uh, do you feel like there's anything that we can ground down a little bit as a next step for somebody who's listening to this? And they're like, okay, you've told me why it sucks. I think we've done a good job of saying how to do, but we have to give value. So value is a how-to, right? Is there anything we missed in this conversation? I think a lot of times in technology specifically, engineers build things that they know how to build instead of just solving a problem. Uh, I think one of the best, I think generally most of the best ideas that I've seen um, come out of new startups are ideas that, a, solve the problem that the founder had, right? That they really created that idea, not out of, I know how to build wood boxes, let me sell wood boxes. But when I'm creating wood boxes, I can't get the corners to join correctly. So I've created a custom piece that helps me cut this join, right? Um, starting out with a problem that, or starting out with a solution that solves a problem that you have personally. And then that second step, really doing the best that you can in advance to see how many other people agree that that's a problem. I mean, those two things fundamentally at the beginning, if you can get good feedback on both of those, you're on a good path to begin with. Yeah, that's great feedback. Um, I would add really that when you're thinking of an idea to experiment with, it doesn't have to be grandiose or something no one has ever thought of. And I think sometimes people are paralyzed by, oh, is this idea really original? And, you know, is this going to be something that other people like? Really, even if it's you're solving a very small problem, it's okay. It doesn't have to be so earth shattering, groundbreaking that it paralyzes you from actually going out there and trying to see if it works. So it's okay to start small. 
And I think that falls directly in line with that concept of step one. What's the identity of the business? Like, do you see this as being like a small iterative change and you want to make a little quick cash? You have to establish like what your willingness to go on the journey is first, in my opinion. Because if you're saying like, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fundamentally change the way, like I know Jinx, we laugh about this, but like I have the next Facebook, right? Good luck. You know, there's probably some other changes that you can take a look at, but also it's a place to explore. Like what if you had, and I ask this question often, what if you had a little business that was doing hundred grand a year that you spend 10 hours a week on and the profit margin was like 60%. So you made 60 grand in free cash from that little business. It doesn't have to be the millions. It doesn't have to be the big, like we exited for eight figures, nine figures. And I think that's what we're trying to say is it's all about what you want to build in the first place. Because that idea is the thing that's going to take form. So if it's something that you're not interested in, it's not something you do every single day. There's so many different ways to make money. So many I have ways. never had an idea that made me an extra 20K a year that I was mad about as long as the labor that I put out was commensurate with what I was getting back with it. We don't always have to shoot for the unicorns. An extra 20K is good for anybody if it fits in your schedule conveniently. Preach. Love that. Preach. It's a great place to stop, guys. I think we can have some future conversations on this. I think this is a conversation we flesh it over time. But to reiterate again, the principle here was all about your time between inspiration and execution is where business is won or lost. There are people out there innovating quicker, faster, and they're moving. But listen, the thing is to th consider the identity of your business, to think about what you're trying to build. What do you see in your minds? Is this something that you want to build a little extra cash from? There are people during this time frame, during COVID and this economic downturn, you're going to be asking yourself, what next? This is next. This is the thought process, the framework, right? Is the product needed? Is there an identity there? Is there an idea that you have? Get really honest with yourself. Do you have what it takes to really see this thing through to completion? The next step, who are you helping? How are you helping? And why are you helping them? That's usually the first page of a business plan anyways. So instead of building on a 40-page model, who is that person? And by the way, that person every single day when they don't have your solution is in pain. It's your job to get them sooner faster. And if we fail, the failure has to come from not from the emotional state, but rather the results we were looking for. And if it was good data that helped us fail. And we want to fail. We want to, know the, we want to know the pain points for ourselves. Get the market research done in step three. Understand why you're doing it, how you're doing it. Get the data, but also make some money in the process. Show that your product has some traction. And step four, let's get out there and actually prove the viability. Is the market responding to the value of your product in the form of dollar bills? So for all of you all out there with the affirmations of Bob Proctor saying, I'm so happy and grateful now that, well, be so happy and grateful now that your product is being exchanged in the value of dollar bills, not just handshakes, smiles, and letters of intent. Fuck yeah. With the bite of the hamburger, Jennifer said, step four is all about building out the bite, not the whole burger, right? So don't drive yourself fucking crazy and stop coming to the meetings asking for websites. Sell your shit. It sounds cavalier. It sounds funny, but honestly... The business for me will only grow and will only be viable if the person who has the idea is willing to get in front of it and pitch it because they believe in it and they show people that they're willing to execute and to transact with it. How fast you do that is totally up to you. How much in pain are you? How fast is your idea worth to you? But make sure the people around you know what's going on. In the show notes, we'll have a PDF and outline of this process for you so you'll have a great guide for yourself. With that said, I want to say thank you so much to Jinx and Jennifer for joining me. This is not the first or the last conversation we're going to have on this. That said, we love you all and we will see you next Tuesday. Later. What the fuck are you waiting for? Take what you learned in this episode and do something with it. 
You'll find all the links and resources we talked about in our show notes for this episode. Go to unfuckmybusiness.com to subscribe to the show. Thank you.